preaching of God's Word is found in the book of Acts and chapter 3. We'll specifically be looking at verse 19. For the sake of context, we'll read from verse 12 through verse 21. So there is the healing of the lame man. Now notice Acts 3, verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified His Son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied Him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let Him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life whom God hath raised from the dead whereof we are witnesses. And His name, through faith in His name, hath made this man strong whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by Him hath given Him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I want that ye through ignorance ye did it as did also your rulers." But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all His prophets, that Christ should suffer, He hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and He shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. It's particularly verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. As we take up this passage, it's important to note as has been read the context. The word is spoken to those who explicitly rejected the Christ. The word is spoken to those who were particularly guilty of denying the Holy One and the just and who days before had cried out with earnestness, crucify Him. Whom shall I deliver? Whom shall I let go? Barabbas. Release Barabbas. But crucify Jesus. Notice verse 15, killed the prince of life. This is what they were guilty of. Is it not astonishing that the very God against whom they had raised their fists of defiance now has ordered that His minister be given to them to call them to repentance for the forgiveness of their sins? What you have here is a tremendous display of God's grace in dealing graciously with sinners. Well, today we hope to begin a series on the doctrine of conversion. And we wish to do so by taking this verse and seeing that it is God who calls all men everywhere to be converted. Why is this important? Well, it's important because as we saw even just by reading Isaiah 1, and we can multiply instances, that it is God who is regularly calling upon His covenant people to be converted. 
It is likewise important because in our own day, there is a brand even of so-called Reformed theology that says, you know, we've made too much of conversion, and so long as children are in the covenant, they're fine. So long as they don't sort of go off the deep end and abandon things. But what we'll find in our series through God's Word on this topic is that covenant is not the same as converted. Though the covenant is a real and objectively real blessing, it is more a blessing because by it the means of grace which are administered, which the Lord uses to convert sinners, are multiplied. So that within God's covenant, one is given an abundance of those means. Whereas outside of God's covenant, it is only occasional, if at all. And so the privilege of God's covenant is the intensity and frequency of the use of these means. It's important because there is a call today that began some few decades back says, you know, the Reformed historically are more about, you know, uh, reforming society and culture and things of this sort. And we certainly agree. Society needs to be reformed. Politics needs to be reformed. All of these things need to be reformed according to God's Word. But that is not to say that our forefathers in the faith were ignorant of the need that men, women, and children had within God's covenant to be converted. So for instance, you can read something like uh, Calvin's treatises, and you can see him with exacting detail, working on all number of things. But then you read his sermons, and you see in his sermons a preaching to a reformed city-state and calling upon his hearers, who by the way, would have been in church every day of the week, you need to be converted. You have it in the Scriptures as we see God sending His ministers to preach unto His people and call them to be converted. You see it in Jesus Christ going to a minister of the Old Covenant, Nicodemus, and teaching him of the necessity of the new birth. You see, the point is again and again and again the Scriptures are clear. Conversion is a real need, not just for the world but for the church. And it is, as many have said before, an unconverted ministry is one of the worst scourges that can be bequeathed to the church. Likewise, could we say an unconverted church is one of the worst scourges that can be experienced in our day. Hell will be filled with unconverted Christians. Can you make sense of that? Not Christians in the sense of regenerate and believing and so on, but Christians by baptism, Christians by confession, Christians by title. The point is there is massive confusion, not just in the world, but even in Reformed circles regarding so fundamental a doctrine as conversion. Now notice our text. Peter is here speaking, and yet he's speaking, of course, we'll remember, as an apostle sent of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he says, repent ye therefore and be converted. Now these words are close. Repent and converted. Repent is a word that has to do with the changing of our mind. Not just in simple trite things, of course, but in a substantial way. Whereas our mind is devoted to something, to undergo this repentance is to have it turned substantially to the opposite thing. And it is, of course, a word that focuses, as it were, on the spiritual aspect, our thoughts and desires. But then it's joined with, be converted, which is a word that means to turn. So both of these words are speaking of a turning of sorts. One that is used very frequently, repent, repentance, and so on. And the other that is used sometimes even of physical things. One's going one way, and they turn and go another way. That's the word that is before you with the idea of converted. But you'll notice that Peter's not interested in our local direction, which way we're facing, north, south, east, or west. But rather, it's in context of you have been opposed to God. Now, think of this for a moment. Who is it that has been opposed to God? It's God's covenant people. Now, someone will say, well, it's the new covenant all of a sudden. And it's true. The new covenant has come at the coming of Christ. However, they stood opposed to Christ prior to His death, the shedding of His blood, and the applying of the new covenant. They were in God's covenant of grace as unconverted people. And now God is coming to them through His ambassador and calling them to repentance to be converted, to undergo and show forth this radical change from being an enemy to God to being one who is now reconciled to Him. Notice the text includes a promise. Be converted, Peter says. And what will happen? That your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. It's not that repentance or conversion somehow merits and purchases forgiveness, but when one turns to the Lord and embraces Him by faith, the work of Christ is then applied to them. But notice, one must be converted for that to take place. One must indeed look to the Lord. And we could multiply instances For this very fact, you can think of Isaiah 55, look unto me and be ye saved. Isaiah 45, rather, uh, the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none other. You can hear Isaiah 55, ho, come unto me, right? All of these different instances, Matthew 11, 28, come to me, uh, all you that are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You can see it in 2 Corinthians 5, that Paul is uh, earnest as a minister to the church. He implores them to be reconciled unto God. Right? There's a constant theme here. This is not to un- create unrest in one who is converted, but rather it is to show the necessity of conversion for us to enjoy the true riches of God's grace. We have a number of sermons before us, but this one from this text helps us to see as these things join together that God calls men within His covenant to be converted and turned from their sin unto Him. This is important because 
as we've noted some aspect of the confusion of our day, we have people in so-called Reformed churches who say things like this. When I was a Baptist, I used to pray that God would convert my children. But then I became a Presbyterian, and I realized that that's unneeded. Those words have been said to me by a Baptist who became a Presbyterian. My child used to pray, God, convert my brother. But now that we're Presbyterians, we realize that that's not needed. You see, the point is not hypothetical or theoretical. It's real. It is a need to address this error that plagues our day. To cultivate the very thing that was being mocked, that our children would cry out to God for conversion. That our children would be on their knees for their siblings, that God would convert their brother or sister, that parents would fall before the Lord and say, Oh God, except you convert them, their sins are not blotted out. Yes, even that adults would come face to face with this great need. There's much, of course, to consider in our study and series through this will not be exhaustive. But We look today at God calling men to be converted. And notice this one book has many instances just to confirm this very truth. Acts 17, for instance, and at verse 30, notice this word, Acts 17 and verse 30, when Paul is speaking to the pagans, the idolaters on the Areopagus, Mars Hill, in Athens, he testifies, verse 30, and the times of this ignorance God winked at but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Notice Acts 20 and verse 21. Someone says, well, that's just, you know, the Gentile pagan. Acts 20 and likewise at verse 21. Paul went publicly and house to house testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. The one thing needful. Notice in 2 Corinthians and chapter 5. 2 Corinthians and chapter 5. In verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. He's exhorting the church to be converted, reconciled, embracing the truth of Christ Jesus. Well, let's start by looking then, as we consider God's call, to look at what is meant by conversion, the meaning of conversion. As we do, we note again that the word that's used here in verse 19 is a word that refers to turning. But in context, it is evidently referring to a turning to God, which of course evokes an image in our mind of one being opposed to and turned away from God, though they may even be within God's covenant. Notice, this is to include both faith 
and repentance, as we read in Acts 20 and verse 21, repentance toward God, faith in Jesus Christ. So those of you who have studied your catechism will see this notion very clearly when you get to question 86 and then 87 and 88. You have the aspect of faith and repentance so clearly articulated because they're talking about conversion. And this catechism within the covenant community of the Reformed Church. There's the need for faith and repentance. We'll look more at those in detail. But there's one expression of conversion. Notice in 1 Thessalonians and chapter 1, you see the beautiful effect of God's grace when He converts a person and when He converts a people. Verse 5 of that chapter, Our Gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the Word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. There's faith, receiving, trusting the Word. Notice they were transformed so that you were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the Word of the Lord not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show us of what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. What Paul is rejoicing in is that the Thessalonians were converted. And how were they converted but by God's blessing of His Word to them? So the meaning of conversion is this comprehensive turn from self and sin and the world to God. Now, this is why some of our forefathers could speak of ongoing conversion because though at the initial work of grace, there's an initial and real turning to God, sincerely trusting in God, and real repentance, there is a lifelong ongoing growth and strengthening of that over time. But let's note that the meaning of conversion includes a number of things. Firstly, we've talked about comprehensive, but more specifically now, firstly, it is a turning to God's provision. A turning to God's provision. You can see this, of course, in verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted. Be turned, that your sins may be blotted out. Well, in context, notice that Peter is calling them to Jesus Christ. You refused Jesus Christ. You rejected Jesus Christ. Now be turned to embrace Jesus Christ. Notice what follows in a context. He speaks of Jesus, of course, who is that prophet Moses spoke of. Verse 23, It shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. And so, it is that they are to embrace that promised prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are to trust in that promised prophet, who is of course much more than a prophet as well. They had opposed Christ. Now they are to turn unto Him. It's interesting, we sing of this very thing in Psalm 2. Think of what the kings and rulers of the earth are doing. And then you'll notice in context with this as our help, what God is calling them to do. 
in verse 1 of Psalm 2, the nations are raging. Verse 2, the kings of the earth are setting themselves against the Lord and against His anointed. Children, you should know this. Anointed refers to Messiah. Who are they opposed to? They're opposed to the Christ. They despise the Christ. They don't want the Christ. They are opposed to Him. But notice what happens at the end. There's reproof, but then it is that in verse 11 and 12, they're exhorted to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling to kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. The kings of the earth as kings, get this clear in your mind, are being called to be converted and to trust in and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing that tells us, as an aside, is there's no such thing as private Christianity. Whereas there is secret aspects and devotion and private things there, that when one is converted, they are converted in all that they are to know and serve the Lord Jesus Christ as politician, as teacher, as whatever the calling may be in this life, because they've been truly turned unto the Lord. But here before us is this fundamental point. Blessed are all they that trust in whom? In the Anointed One, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why when speaking of conversion, as we'll see in time to come, faith is put first when talking about the doctrine because faith is that looking to Christ in order to receive of Him all that He's done for us. So God says, look unto Me. Christ says, as Moses raised up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man shall be raised, and he that looks to Him shall be saved. Here's the point. That when there is conversion, there is a looking to Christ. But notice this clearly. It's not a looking to Christ as merely an orthodox set of doctrine. It is a looking to Christ as the provided Savior for oneself. So we need to be clear. Orthodoxy is good and right. And we need to be diligent students of God's Word so that we know the Christ of the Bible so that we trust then in the Christ of the Bible. But merely asserting, for instance, you know, the Orthodox creeds or our own confession of faith regarding the person of Christ, to say, well, that's the truth, is not turning to Christ. When one is converted, it's more than just acknowledging the truth of the Bible's teaching regarding Christ. When one is converted, they look at Christ and say, He is mine. I trust Him. This is what we mean by turning to God's provision. Christ said it in Matthew 11, Come unto Me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Elsewhere He says, If any man thirsts, let him come to Me. Again and again, the call is a call not just to acknowledge that He is the Savior, that He is the Son of God, that He is truly, fully God, fully man, one person. All of that is right and good. But conversion 
is more than that. In other words, an unconverted person can be a fine, doctrinally sound theologian. But they will have failed to embrace the truth of that theology they may well articulate. Because to be converted is to look to and receive and embrace Jesus Christ as one's own. So, the meaning of conversion, turning to God's provision in Jesus Christ. Secondly, it is a turning to God's reign. Christ Himself said, and you can see this in Matthew, Mark, and so on, that He would go forth preaching, and what were His words on many occasions? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What's He getting at? He's addressing a world that is in rebellion. He's coming to a people who are at odds with God. And He comes and He says, Repent, for the kingdom and reign of God is here. I'm the King. I'm calling upon you to lay down your arms, to reject your rebellion, and to embrace allegiance to Me. That's what we're getting at. So where there is this repent and be converted, there is this summary of that very truth. God is calling upon people who are enemies of Him to become those who embrace Him and who submit to Him. This is why we can talk about a myriad number of different angles on the way of conversion. Not different conversions, but different insights to what takes place in conversion. One thing that happens when one is converted is they lay down the weapons of their war against God. So there was a controversy in the 80s and 90s about lordship salvation. And this notion was, some were saying, well, to say that one must embrace Jesus Christ as Lord is to say that one must do something in order to be saved. Now, we don't know that anyone ever said as much. If they did say as much, they were wrong. But what is meant by acknowledging Christ as Lord is rather, as it were, to come and abase oneself before the Lord and confess, I have sinned against you. You are the Lord. Be Lord over me. You are the Savior. It's not by His making us faithful that all of a sudden we become saved. It's rather to acknowledge He is both Lord and Savior. And we come to Him as prophet, priest, and king. And part of that will be displayed in our ongoing walk, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians. How was Paul able to say, we know your election? It wasn't because of a miraculous inspiration given him by God. He says, because we behold that when the Word of God came to you, it came with power. And you turned from idols to embrace Jesus Christ and to serve Him. See, it's the evidence of conversion. In other words, of course, one is converted and they confess Jesus Christ. But over time, it will show itself by a life truly transformed. One that used to walk contrary to Christ is now walking in accordance to Christ. Why is that? Because they really have been turned to the Lord. It wasn't just an intellectual thing 
One saying, you know, I was studying philosophy, I was studying secular humanism and atheism, I studied Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, and then all of a sudden I saw the brilliant clarity of the Scripture's true teaching, and I said, oh, that's the philosophy I'll acknowledge. No. Conversion is a true coming to God in Christ. Embracing Him. So this is what Jesus says. Any man will be my disciple... Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? Tell everyone that I've professed faith. No, follow me. Walk in my ways. This is why John's able to say, if anyone says I know him and yet does not keep his word, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. Why? Because if we keep his word, we earn heaven? No. But because when one is truly converted, they are turned to submit to Christ and say, He is Lord. He is the One whom I will follow now. Christ says it. Why do you call Me Lord and do not what I say? Why is He able to say these things? Because it's not just about confessing faith. It's about conversion. It's about when one truly is converted, they not only say, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior, but they are turned to Him to follow after Him, to walk in and with Him, to submit to His Holy Word. Think of the Great Commission. It's astonishing how you know, we start to scratch at the surface and we start to see how bankrupt much broad even evangelicalism is. The Great Commission is not simply... Go and tell everyone that Jesus is the Savior. That's included. But notice verse 19, Matthew 28, Go ye therefore, teach all nations, literally disciple, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. What's his point? He is giving a foundation by which the apostles would be instructing a people to embrace Jesus Christ as prophet, as priest, as king. There is to be a true turning. So we should be mindful of this. You know, someone starts to show some sincere, it seems, earnest desire after Christ. And they come to us and say, you know, I've prayed this prayer. We shouldn't just say, well, you know, big deal. Nor should we do what most do and say, well, you've been converted. Rather, with prudence and loving support, we should come alongside and say, praise God, there's a begun interest and perhaps even a conversion. But we should with caution tell them, if you're converted, this is what will happen. You will walk with the Lord. But far too often, people jump on board and they start giving all of these testimonies and miss the point that conversion is not an emotional high wherein we have tears in our eyes and all of these things happen. That may take place. It is a spiritual transformation whereby a dead sinner is given life and turns to embrace Jesus Christ and to walk with Him. It's a turning to embrace God's provision and a turning to embrace God's reign. 
This is why we have no hesitation in testifying that Christ is the King and Head of the Church. It's not, as it were, some sort of democracy where we've elected the King. The Church isn't, as older writers would say, a voluntary society. The Church is a kingdom. The minister's not a king. The session's not a king. The presbytery, general assembly's not a king. Christ is the king. But what that means is to be identified as members of His church, there is a call upon every single one of us to turn to the king, to trust Him as our Savior, but also to embrace Him and submit to Him as our king. Which thirdly leads us to the opposite of that, it is a turning from our rebellion. A turning from our rebellion. This is what Peter's getting at when he says, repent and be converted. You need to turn to Christ and embrace Him. You need to turn to Christ and submit to Him. And you need to turn from yourself, your thoughts, your ways, this world. This is conversion. All of this, as we'll see, requires supernatural grace. Christ says this, you know, except a man be born again, he cannot see, John 3, nor enter in, John 3, the kingdom of God. And yet, nonetheless, it is true that men are here called to be converted. Now, what is the need for this conversion? See, the liberal so-called church has no place for conversion. The liberal so-called church has a place for reform, has a place for social justice, has a place for all manner of activities outwardly concerned, but has no place for a legitimate supernatural conversion because they are already off by rejecting the God of the Bible. So what is a person going to be converted to? Moreover, they're wrong because fundamentally they think people are good. This is actually something we need to push back against. People by nature since Adam are not good. Education in public schools, the government in our nation, most people think at root people are good. This is why people are surprised at the ungodly things that, things that people do. Whereas the Christian should be surprised that there is any semblance of order in this world. The reason, of course, that there is is because God in His mercies orders and corrects and judges and so on. But here's the point. Your children aren't good. You're not good. The neighborhood children are not good. The public school's children are not good. The Christian school's children are not good by nature. What is needed is not merely an instruction of manners. It's not merely a cultivation of propriety. There's a place for those things. But at root, what is needed is a fundamental and radical change from death to life, from rebellion to, by grace, friendship with God. In other words, if you know, our educational system had its way, it would make all of these people you know, well-ordered and thoughtful and generally kind. But 
only in a way of dressing up the actual problem. The real message of need is not education. We're all for education. The real message that's needed is you're dead in your sins. You're a rebel and an enemy against God. You must be converted. You want to know about all the cause of racial strife? You want to know about the causes of injustice in our land, its history, and so on? It's not because of social injustice. It's because at heart, men hate God. That's the problem. Nothing else is going to solve our nation's problems. Because the fundamental problem is that man is at enmity with God. How then could there be any expectation that there should be peace among God's image bearers if the image is already despised? Notice, for instance, in Romans chapter 1, it is this testimony against man as Paul brings together passage after passage against man. And we see, as many have before us seen, our own Test our own culture. You see it, for instance, in Romans 1, verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. If you look at this for a moment, what you see is fundamentally rebellion against God. Now keep that in mind and notice what happens. Verse 26, For this God caused God gave them up to vile affections. Their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, receiving in themselves the recompense of their error. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. What's the point? This whole torrent of public spectacle sins is founded upon the foundation is devastatingly broken. Man stands at odds with God. There's no healing society unless and until that is addressed. That's why the Christian hope is not through social work. The social gospel is no gospel. Sure, people may get fed and that's needed. But they get fed to do what? but to continue in their state of death and to incur judgment for their sins against God. Whereas the church should be motivated to serve those who are in need and clothe the naked and feed the hungry. They are preeminently concerned about the fundamental problem facing all men everywhere, 
which is that man is dead in their sins, and the only hope is that they would be converted by the knowledge of Christ. What if you solved world hunger? What if you solved, you know, poverty? What if you solved all of those things? You would have filled people who have money, who are dead in their sins, and going to hell. That's it. That's what you would have. What happens if you solve all the social injustices of the world? You would have social righteousness for people who are dead in their sins and going to hell. Why? Because they hate God. Because they are enemies of God. Our sensibilities in our culture hesitate to assert that. We feel it to be unkind. We feel it to be unloving. Surely it can be unlovingly said. But unless the root issue is dealt with, what does it matter if you put a bandage, a scab that is a mark of cancer? It does no good. It hides and covers up the problem, but does nothing actually to address the problem. So it is in the false gospel of social justice. The need for conversion is because the unconverted are in rebellion against God. They may do so in a more civil way. They may be churchgoers. They may be middle class. They may have nice neighborhoods. They may have all of those things. They may be free of certain sins outwardly. But as Christ said to the Pharisees, you're like whited sepulchers. On the outside, you appear glorious. On the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. Christ was a preacher of conversion. Christ was one who was calling men to repent and believe the Gospel. Why? Because He knew the need of the Old Covenant people and of the Gentiles as He commissions His apostles to go to the uttermost part of the world was fundamentally that they be reconciled to God by grace through faith in Christ. The great problem facing every man, black, white, boy, girl, doesn't matter, rich, poor, all throughout the world is this. They by nature are enemies of God. That's the problem facing men. And so the message that is needed is repent and be converted. Why? Well, notice what Peter says. It's when one repents and is converted that their sins are blotted out. What happens, in other words, if one doesn't repent and is not converted? Their sins are not blotted out. Their sins remain upon them. The perfect and exacting record of their thoughts, words, and actions even their idle words remain emblazoned upon the books of justice and call upon one who is zealous for his name, for his own glory, and will bring forth judgment unending upon all men, all women, all children, everywhere who have continued impenitent and not fled to Christ. Brethren, we need to get this in our hearts. This is real. There are people you pass by every day of your life who are dead in their sins, who are enemies of God, and who are on the road to hell most certainly. There are children you pass by at playgrounds 
who are enemies of God and who will die in their sins except God by His grace converts them. There are people perhaps in this room who are enemies of God who will be discovered by God's searching justice who have not given repentance, who have not converted by grace will have these words echo through their minds for unending eternity realizing that to them was given the word, you must be converted. And they said, making much out of nothing. I'm a pretty good person. Dignified. I'm put together. I'm here at church. I mean, I'm at my second service, you know. I sing the Psalms. I hold to this confession. I read the Bible. All of which is no certain sign that you have passed from death to life. If you want to know the most orthodox theologian in the world, you already know his name. It's Satan. Satan is the most orthodox in all the world. He knows the doctrine better than you, better than me, better than the whole church together. This is why he can pervert it so much. This is why he can subtly bring men off. He knows all the creeds better than you know them. He knows the Scriptures better than you know them, as do his demons. But he is no believer James says this, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and what? Tremble. They're not converted. Oh, but you know, I was once moved. I had tears streaming down my eyes. I was once awakened to the peril of damnation and I was sad and sorry and I confessed and all of these things. All of that's fine. Judas did the same thing. Esau sought a place for repentance, found it not, and is now enduring the judgment of God because his sins were never blotted out. Why? Because he never turned to Christ and embraced Him. It is most needful that you be converted. If you are not converted, your life may indeed mimic Christians in certain ways, You may be superior to other people in your doctrinal integrity. Your libraries may be stocked with all of the best books, the best authors. Your reading habits may be spectacular. But if you've not turned to embrace Jesus Christ, if you've not trusted in Him, if you've not turned to God and embraced Him as your God and owned Him as your God, young, old, male, female, doesn't matter, Your sins are not blotted out. And God in His exacting justice will demand exacting payment for all eternity against so foolish of sin against His eternal glory. If you are not converted, you are yet in the gall and bitterness of impenitence. And God shall discover it in due time. Is it not wondrous that it's God who commissions men to go to those who are His enemies with terms of peace saying, turn to Me. Why shall you die? Why will you not live? I'm calling upon you to turn and look to Me. To take Me. To own Me. To trust Me. Come with words and say, take away sin. Forgive sin. Look unto Me and be ye saved. The need for conversion is on every page of the Scriptures. How so? 
because the Scriptures are the record of God which are able to make us wise to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Brethren, we're disturbed by false religion openly assaulting the truth of God, but we are more disturbed by those who are orthodox and play it cool with conversion. Because in those churches, you have so many orthodox corpses which are not interested in the true needed things of conversion. Mockeries about conversion. Laughings about revival. All of these different things are ridiculed. Surely there are gross and wicked abuses of revivalism and so on. But how can any Christian who has once tasted and seen that God is good, who trusts in Him is blessed, how is it that any Christian should ever look at the outpouring of God's Spirit where men, women, and children are confessing their sins, calling upon God to be saved, and have anything but rejoicing that God is gracious? How is it that there are so-called reformed people who can ridicule revival except they themselves have underestimated the need for conversion? Except they themselves have underestimated the reality of what conversion is. That a dead sinner is brought to faith in Christ by grace. Brethren, the need for conversion is universal to all descendants of Adam because all themselves are guilty and stand in need of salvation. Brethren, does God demand sinners be converted? Then see what a perilous and sad state all have who die unconverted. We have perfected the way of discovering ways our life is worse than others. It's amazing how crafty people can come to find out ways that their life isn't as good as somebody else's. Of course, we look at social media, we drive different neighborhoods, and we see these things and say, well, my life's not as good as theirs is. But here's something that your life is spectacularly better than many others. You know Christ. Christ the Savior of sinners, has been proclaimed to you. There are people who have all the riches that men can imagine, and their lives are publicly splattered all over the world as the paragon of what men should want, and yet they have no knowledge of Christ. What good is that? What good is it to have everything in this world? Isn't that what Christ says? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and yet forfeits his soul. Those who die unconverted enter into that unchanging state where they shall forever grieve, mourn, and experience the judgment for their sins. Well, does God demand this? Then see for a moment why you should make it your focus. You. Think of this for a moment. Does God demand that you be rich? He doesn't. But many in America make that out to be their priority. Does God demand women that you be beautiful and attractive? No. 
But many women make that their goal. Does God demand men that you be muscular and strong? No. But many men make that their goal. But does God demand that you be converted? And the answer is yes. And now for a moment consider how few actually order their lives after what God demands. Be converted. He calls upon Jew and Gentile repentance toward God, faith in Jesus Christ. He winked at the sins and ignorance done in the past, but now commands every man everywhere, repent and believe the Gospel. This is the demand from God Most High. And men take it with all of the concern as the passing side things of the streets that we pay no attention to, signs on the road that we have no understanding of, they just zoom by and are insignificant to us. And God appeals to us always in His Word, repent, believe the Gospel. This is the one thing needful. The one thing needful. Children, is it the one thing needful for you? Adults, is it for you? Well, if this is His demand, then how happy and blessed are they who have been converted. If you've been converted, if God has given you life, opened your eyes, brought you to faith in Christ, though imperfectly in this life, yet truly, then the one single most needed thing there is, He in grace has given to you. Without which, your future would be unending grief. But with which, your future is going to be unending joy. Why? Because He's brought you to embrace Jesus Christ by whom you have life everlasting. If you've been converted, you have been given the richest blessing there is that God gives. And you've been given the gift that shall never cease to sustain your joy and gladness for all eternity. Given by God. Is it not the case then that you who have been converted should rejoice all your days in the display and the application of salvation, and that you should assault heaven, not only with thanksgiving, but with petitions that God would yet be more gracious by converting others. Brethren, our time comes to an end. May the Lord so bless that each of us would know the reality of conversion to His glory and to our own gladness for all eternity. Would you stand with me for praise?